Really True Fiction is a podcast exploring famous stories to discover the wisdoms, lessons, insights, and ideas therein. Be advised that there will be heavy spoilers for whatever story we are discussing in this episode, as well as potential spoilers for other stories. Check episode notes or social media posts for additional spoilers. Please note that this podcast contains so many bad words and so many crude observations. If this is not your jam, please don't bring the toast. Welcome to another episode of Really True Fiction. This is Luke Mason. And this is David Parker. David, what would happen to your circulatory system if your heart grew three sizes, do you think? I feel like the pressure would, would cause some, some issues. Maybe uh, blood would just start squirting out of my orifices. Yeah, I feel like there's a reason why we keep metaphors in their place. <laughs> they, don't object, they don't perform well in objective reality. <laughs> But you know what? I'd probably, I'd probably be strong enough to like lift a sleigh over my head if my, <laughs> if my heart grew three sizes today. Yeah. Yeah. If your heart grew three sizes, the laws of physics would be absolutely meaningless Except, to you. Well, ask all super good superheroes. <laughs> also, Merry Christmas, everybody. Merry Christmas. This is a very thematic episode because um, the meat of it is we're going to do The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, which is a... The reason I understand why it's a Christmas book is because of the it's always winter, never Christmas in Narnia. And then when Father Christmas shows up, it's like when her power, the witch's power starting to wane. But is that it? Or am I missing something? Or is there more Christmas-y things about well, it that I I'm think not that quite... It's just kind of within our culture, particularly within British culture, maybe more so than Canadian culture, there's this idea of Christmas and Narnia as connected. You see that on the BBC with Doctor Who. They had like a Narnia-like episode. For some reason, and I think it's because of the snow... Like right. Christmas and Narnia are very interconnected. Mm, yes. And this is the first Narnia book written. Yes. So it would have been kind of, I guess, the genesis of the Narnia lore. And since it all comes back to that, since it is set in winter and Christmas is a huge component of the plot, or at least like the th- the theme... I guess for sure of the book of the waning power of the witch, then it makes sense. And also, Father Christmas is pretty awesome in the book. Yeah, he is pretty awesome in the book. So yeah. Uh, but before we do that, we're also going to do our little short take on how the Grinch stole Christmas. Because why, why, why not? Yeah, <laughs> yeah. It was um, obviously we're uh, you know I don't I don't think we have to really hammer it home, but we're not doing anything other than the Doctor Seuss. Made for TV 1966 version, which we all know and love. I'm sure, hopefully, everyone has seen it. If you haven't, it's probably on YouTube or mm-hmm. something. But before we start, we definitely want to wish everyone happy holidays. And I mean, maybe you're listening to this no time around Christmas, but you know, the sentiment is still there. And it's very, you know, snowy outside here and it feels very warm and Christmassy as we're recording. Yeah, it so. snowed a lot today. We're recording this in mid December, so it's. Of the feeling right now. Yes, Christmas carols are playing on the radio, you know. Yeah. When you go out in public, Christmas is, is Although on you, people's minds. You know, it's funny you mention that because at work, lately we've been just putting it on the Christmas music station. 
but I don't hear any kind of like old versions of Christmas songs. It's all new versions of Christmas songs. Oh. Like old songs with that have been like covered or remade. Really? Jingle bells and Yeah. But like Lang Syne. Jingle Bell Rock, but Mary, did you know? No versions that I know. <laughs> right. Oh, interesting. Yeah. So that's, I mean, that's fine. It's, you know. Okay, so. Christmas Gr- for a new generation. <laughs> the Grinch. Uh, yeah. Um, when did you first encounter this story? What are your thoughts on Dr. <laughs> Seuss? And why does this story have lasting power for people? I first watched it definitely as a kid. I don't know. Probably age six or seven. I, uh, it's probably the first time. Because it was always on TV around Christmas time. I mean, I remember on CBC they had like a what was it, like a month of Christmas? So like every night there would be a classic Christmas movie or show on. I mean, that's how I watched that Rudolph claymation one as well. Is that when you saw the uh, the David Copperfield one as well? Or no, that was that tape that we both had somehow. Yeah, I don't think, not David Copperfield, but definitely the Disney Christmas Carol. Yes. Would have been yes. there. So True. with Scrooge McDuck as Ebenezer Scrooge. And what was your second question? Second question mm. is what are your thoughts on Dr. Zeus? Uh, it's great kids material. It's ma- it's magical. Yeah. It's about as good as it gets of the genre. <laughs> yeah, and I, I think he's he's pretty profound. Really, the thing is, I mean, we wanted to do something fun, like the Grinch, a little opening. This is not a complicated story. No, no. <laughs> There's nothing complicated about this story. It's very fun. The point of it is very clearly that the Grinch misapprehended the intentions of the Who's. He He's, thought that the Christmas was about the gifts and yeah, the consumerism. Yeah. Well, and I, I, okay, I will say, knowing a lot more about how stories work now, the opening or one of the early scenes with what he's imagining all the Who's will do on Christmas with all of their toys is great foreshadowing, for lack of a better term, for uh, this story. This is, again, an obvious story. The Grinch changes his mind because he mistook what the intentions of the Who's were. He assumed that they were shallow and materialistic and superficial and that without their stuff, they would be entitled and angry, right? He thought, and I think he thought they would be, that he would ruin, because what he seems to hate is their Christmas spirit, right? Mm-hmm. He hates the idea that people are happy and he thinks they're happy. We don't know why the Grinch is so unhappy, but I guess if I was to like speculate, he's kind of living by himself as a mm-hmm. hermit. He doesn't have many things himself, and he just seems grumpy about life and is lonely. He's and very clearly motivated by resentment. Yeah, he's, he, he resents their happiness, and he thinks he could take away their happiness. Yeah. Before watching again, I would have said, yeah, he just he doesn't like their happiness. The only real way you can make sense of this is to actually think he was mad. He was mad at his assumption of their superficiality, because they are still happy. Right. Right at the end. Like and that's still, what changes him yeah. is that, is that wow, he, they're still happy yeah. without any of their things. Why are they still happy yeah. with this? And then he realizes I could be happy too. Mm-hmm. And then he engages in their Christmas spirit. And it's because they have that actual Christmas spirit. And it, it's so on the nose and so cliche. And, you know, I was thinking about this. It's like, okay, well, there's not really actually that much to talk about, about how the Grinch stole Christmas. But, I wanted to turn it around a bit and ask, again, the moral of this Grinch is that he was able to be less angry or he was able to, you know, have his heart grow three sizes and save all the toys and bring them back and cut the roast beast because the Who's were able to show him the beauty of Christmas is within them, not within their possessions. 
the cultural and social and even spiritual aspects of Christmas live within all of them and their relationships and they don't need their toys, which is a perennial Christmas story, right? Yeah. But Christmas isn't about the the, toys. the real meaning of Christmas, let's yeah. say. And and I mean it's like the Charlie Brown yep. and everything. Yeah. So I didn't want to like hammer that home as much as I wanted to ask you then, can you remember a first or at least a vivid memory of when Christmas was about more than the toys, but like a Christmas memory or thought or feeling you have about being connected to that feeling of togetherness with others, which is as if you'll pardon it, the meaning of Christmas. Yeah, if you, uh, I think if I um, go way back in time to when I'm like a memory that's kind of from my six or seven year old self, I remember one of the moments that I loved most about Christmas was actually my mom reading out loud to us. Because uh, that happened a lot more over Christmas. We had a lot more time. We didn't have school work to do. So we would just sit around and my mom would read to us. And one of the books she read was The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. But another one that I have, and this is a weird memory, but it's it's very personal to me, is me and my brother lying on the floor looking up at the roof at the shadows that the Christmas tree lights made on the roof where they would shine through the we always got a real Christmas tree. They would shine through the needles and there'd be like cool shadows on the roof. And there was just this feeling of warmth. And I think it's one of, you've mentioned this in a podcast before about winter and how winter means something to Canadians. But I think Christmas means even more to Canadians because it's so cold and we're so trapped in our homes. But instead of it feeling trapped and having cabin fever, at least during the Christmas time, I think it feels cozy and warm and inviting. Yeah. And that's kind of the overall sense that I I have in remembrance of Christmas. Yeah. Yeah, that's a good... What about you? Do you have like a... Yeah, I do. I mean, obviously, I think one big component of it is those intangible things you mentioned about like how... Just the Christmas lights on the outside of houses with all the snow and the music and the feel and the the way that all the stores decorate and play Christmas music. There's just something kind of homey about it that I really love that feeling. I don't know. It's just the Christmas feeling that's kind of always there that really has nothing to do with anything you... perhaps not surprisingly really the only place i don't feel that around the christmas season is at the mall right yeah. <laughs> where yeah. everyone's hustling and bustling right like well you've got to get the presents for everybody right it feels like you're missing the point yeah <laughs> <laughs> but a specific memory yeah i think it, it must I, I was probably about six maybe seven and at the time my mom was a nurse who was doing long-term care kidney dialysis for i don't know how many patients but certainly this one patient she saw pretty often you know if you know about kidney dialysis, it's basically your kidneys don't work. So you have to have a machine, like you have to take, um, I guess it's your blood yeah. out of your own body, have it processed in a dialysis machine and then pumped back in like three times a week kind of thing. Like it's not great. Not a fun, yeah. So process. my mom had a patient who she was doing or, or uh, facilitating that with. And when the rotation fell on Christmas day, it's like, well, we got to go or I have to go do that. And so we weren't able to, like have our Christmas in the morning. Like we couldn't open our presents basically until like late afternoon, evening kind of thing. And like when you're seven <laughs> that's, that's and you rough. have three younger <laughs> sisters, like that's just straight up BS, right? Like, but after I put up the seven-year-old tantrum of what do you mean I can't open my presents right now kind of thing. I've been waiting like 
all of December for this. What are you talking about? And, you know, my parents trying to patiently explain. And they, and they like, they let us open one present in the morning. And then we all went to this person's house so my mom could help them with their kidney dialysis. And I just remember, I can't remember if it was the man or the woman who was getting the dialysis. But it was one of them. And then the other one was there, too. So it was a couple. And they were at the house. And I remember kind of talking to them or them, like, being thankful and grateful that we were there because they knew how hard it was to be away at Christmas but this was like a really inopportune procedure that had to happen on Christmas day for them and 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 I mean obviously at age seven the fullness of that of the implications of all that didn't really impact me as much as it could but I do remember like kind of thinking like oh well you know these people have something hard in their lives and I guess I got this one toy and I can wait and (laughs) it's definitely something though like as I retroactively Christmas is kind of like the season to remember that despite all of the hard things in life like kidney dialysis it's just so beautiful to have people around you that you want to be around and can trust and like because my whole family was at this person people's house and we just kind of joked around and laughed and I don't know it's like that was the beginning of it being hard to reconcile just the materialism of Christmas do you know what I mean because it was like contrasted to these other people going through a really hard thing, but also being kind of grateful that we were there helping them. Yeah. You know, that's and like, really, that's way better than mine. And that's an attitude <laughs> shift. Yeah. Uh, that is a huge attitude. <clears throat> but them still being like them being grateful, but also just kind of cheerful, you know, like, yeah. uh, like these people had a good reason to not be cheerful <laughs> and they were still, but cheerful. they still managed to be cheerful on a Christmas day. And I mean, I don't know, maybe I'm projecting memories onto my own seven-year-old self kind of thing. But I don't know. I, like, I, I distinctly remember that day. Right. So I'll tell you the moment that Christmas became not about gifts for me, uh, which I think is another uh, Grinch-esque thing. <laughs> sure. See, the, I think one of the interesting things about the Grinch story is we've all felt that desire for like a really cool gift, like especially as a kid. And so... For some reason, when I was like, I think I was 12, I really, really wanted a horse or a quad or some, like some possession that I would be fairly expensive, but that I could just ride around. Of course, my parents didn't make very much money, and that was a ridiculous thing to want. But my parents wouldn't let us go into the closet where they were storing these gifts for Christmas for months. <laughs> I think it was like a full month and a half. And so, like, the anticipation of this gift, like, built up. And I, I thought it was... Because like, it was so close? Well, yeah, and I wasn't allowed to see it. So my expectations ran away with me. Like, I thought, I thought maybe it's a horse. Maybe it's, a, like, a, maybe it's skidoos. Yeah, like, sure. Maybe it's dirt bikes. Like, I was so excited. And I was so disappointed when we got in there. And it was, they bought cross-country skis for all of us. Now, that's a great gift. That is a really good gift. But probably more expensive, too, than anything you would have been guessing it was. Yeah, yeah like, they'd got them. Yeah, and, like, we ended up using those them a lot. And, and I enjoy it to this day. I enjoy cross-country skiing. But the funny thing was realizing just how my expectations had kind of ruined a beautiful moment. And I think of the Grinch. And like, what if the story of the Grinch was not that they went out and sang, but they were all in that state of disappointment. Sure, yeah. Then the Grinch never would have learned the true well, lesson. Well, and of the Grinch would have almost been a little bit vindicated. Yeah, even, <laughs> like if everyone was like started fighting and yelling at each other. And sometimes like, is the Grinch even the bad guy? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> like obviously the Who's have got problems. Yeah, and I think the lesson that that taught me, I think it's an important lesson to learn, was that 
A, something I mentioned a lot, expectations minus reality. That's happiness. Because I should have been happy in that moment. But I was so disappointed yeah. because I'd built up this crazy fantasy yeah, in my head. that's a great point. And, and I mean, the Grinch is kind of doing that too. Yeah. Like the Grinch does have a, uh, maybe we're getting too deep into psychoanalyzing the Grinch here, but whatever. The Grinch has a built up expectation of what he thinks the well, Who's he, will do. It's pretty sophisticated yeah. fantasy of like all the things they're going to play with. <laughs> and yeah, he's like, he's super excited about their misery. Like mm-hmm. he wants to induce misery into their lives because he hates their happiness. Yeah. And he, but he thinks that they deserve that misery because of how dependent they are on external things from themselves. Yes. Yes. Which I guess that kind of makes the Grinch sound a little deeper than he is because I don't think. He would know that exactly. I mean, it's it's such a short. It's like twenty five minutes, yeah. right? So it's such a short. <clears throat> there isn't really any massive development on the Grinch's part to suggest one way or the other what his more deep pre thoughts were. Yeah, because I'm just trying to figure this out now of what he could even be thinking about beyond what we see. This story, I mean, it's very fun, right? Like watching it again. It's of course this is for kids. It's such a the songs are great, the jokes are great. It's a Dr. Seuss, so the Seussisms are amazing. You're a uh, yeah, Mr. Grinch. <laughs> but I, I guess, well, maybe to actually answer your third question, the reason that this story I think sticks with people so hard and why it's a perennial one is because it's a wonderful so so clear example of a category that you could call simple but vital i think where it's not complicated it's like a very a to b plot and the nugget of human truth in it is vital right not just oh yeah that makes sense but like mm, yeah like never forget this kind of thing and i think it's the simple but vital aspect of it that's so worthwhile for it because of course if the who's were petulant whiny little babies not getting their toys and the grinch throws them off the cliff and it ends it's like well oh that's kind of, that's actually a such a letdown yeah that would be right like every story, like yeah. everyone in the story is kind of sucky like how am i supposed to love this right like there's no i think in the inception they say it's that the positive catharsis is so much more powerful than the negative catharsis which is why it'll work yeah. in inception right yes yeah <clears throat> and i think the positive catharsis of the simple but vital is why it sticks yeah it's it's telling a a universal story that's actually important which is that you know i mean to quote auden we must love one another or die mm-hmm. it'd be easy to see it as trite it's like well the meaning of christmas is each other not the gifts it's like well duh <laughs> right <laughs> yeah i think though that that is another great example of easier said than done if you think about the stress and the things people get wrapped up in and it's not even just gifts but it's like hosting parties making sure you have everything cooked like just the kind of hustle and bustle of it is it can take away from the fact that really the best parts about the christmas spirit that i love and it's year round but at christmas it's just you have more parties i guess so it's like the little jokes you tell with your friends when you're half drunk, you know, yeah. and and the kind of like and the little warm, traditions you have, yeah, with the, your family. the the stupid little traditions that you have with your family and your friends and all that kind of stuff. I think that yeah, sure, maybe it's simple, but sometimes so, the simple know, things are what really matter, right? Yeah, sometimes people are we're we're too stupid to keep it simple. <laughs> exactly. So that would be my take on the Grinch. 
I like that take. Cool. So then let's get on to uh, our... Narnia. Narnia, yeah. I mean, probably we will do... Well, almost certainly we will do all the other books at some point. Probably because it was the first one written in the 50s, I think, or 1950 it was published, right? It was like after the World Wars, but the World Wars... Or World War II, but World War II is still fresh in everybody's mind. Yeah, I mean, I uh, this is definitely the most standalone of all the books because it was the first one written. I mean, I don't know. You know way more about C.S. Lewis than I do. Did he have a seven book so in his, mind his, when uh, he was writing yeah, He this? had more in mind, but his entire idea of it was he just one night he had a dream about a fawn in a forest with a lamppost and carrying a bunch of packages, and he built the entire story off of that. Wow image so basically the fawn in the forest with a, with a lamppost which is a really cool <laughs> image yeah um, well the imagery i think is part of the magic yeah of narnia well and i right? think most people listening probably know this but for those who don't c.s lewis and J.R.R. tolkien were best friends uh and they would meet all the time they had a little group called the inklings i've actually this year for the first time got to go to the to the pub where they used to meet the oh, you mean child that wasn't originally a, like a nintendo game or a Nintendo character, the Inklings? <laughs> no. no. Uh, okay. <laughs> that, yeah, your way makes more sense. <laughs> and uh, actually, Tolkien didn't like Narnia because he thought it was too simple <laughs> and too like on the nose. I will say, reading this again, this Line the Witch and Wardrobe was probably the first book I've ever read. At least, like, first not explicitly kid book kind of thing. Right. And probably when you first read it, it seemed like a tome. Well, I was nine. Yeah, exactly. I was nine when I first read Lion, the Witch, and Wardrobe. And I probably haven't actually read the book since I was maybe 13. Yep, <laughs> so, yep. I, I, but I read it in those four years. I probably read it at, uh, like 15 times kind of thing, <laughs> yeah. like a whole bunch. I was and am very familiar with the story. Reading it again this time, the age that I am now, I'm like, oh, this book is very specifically for like twelve year olds. <laughs> it is for kids. Yes, yes. I think and, and that's fine. Like it's it's there's no magic lost exactly, except that I think it, it just passively crept into my mind. The prose was more sophisticated because of how penetrating and overwhelmingly cultural this story is. I think part of actually why it's so. Um penetrating and, and, and deep in our culture is because it's the simple language actually is simple uh, and it's so accessible. Like this is mm, one of the most good accessible point. stories you're ever going to read. This is more accessible than, uh, uh, don't hate me for saying this, all you Harry Potter fans, but this is more accessible than Harry Potter. Uh, yeah, I would say so. The Harry Potter books are just, even the shortest one is much longer than yes. it. So there's a lot uh, more to keep track but he, of. But he packs like such a powerful story into it. And I also think that the Narnia books in particular are like the best read aloud books for kids because mm-hmm. the stories are paced in an exciting way mm-hmm. there's always something happening the characters are interesting and there's mystery and you know there's and there's it's danger. in a it's in a different world it's an but adventure it's, book has people yes. but also magic creatures but also animals the animals that talk. Can talk which you know is always exciting for mm-hmm. kids whether it be red but, wall or narnia and for some reason in this book they have like a lot of the same traditions we do on earth <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. like they they have I was christmas that as well when i was reading it i was like huh. they have interesting they have tea yeah <laughs> they're big on oh, yeah. drinking tea it's like everybody in narnia went to britain school yeah. <laughs> before they like how to be british in narnia yeah. kind of it's, thing it's an incredibly british book which yeah. i hadn't really thought about until i read this yeah this again. also just occurred to me as a kind of an outside thing about narnia which is kind of funny it's, it's a little bit of a precursor to star wars in its 
episodic writing to actual setting. True. Because true. like in Star Wars, where episodes four, five, six were the first ones made, in the timeline of Narnia, from real world writing, Line the Witch Wardrobe is book two. The next book written was Prince Caspian, which is book four, Voyage of the Dawn Treader five, Silver Chair six, then Horse and His Boy, book three. <laughs> Then yes. Magician's Nest View, book, book one. one, and then Last Battle, book, book seven. seven. Yeah. So only one of the seven books were written sequentially to where they are in the yeah, storyline. Basically, it would be Dawn Treader and Caspian, right? Well, Caspian is the fourth book written second. Right, Dawn Treader is the fifth book written third. Silver Chair is the sixth book written so only fourth. only seven is the one. Horse and His Boy is the third book written fifth. Yeah, true, yeah. true So only true. the Last Battle is the seventh book written, written seventh. Seven. Yeah. <laughs> That's a good point. That's a and good point. You definitely notice stylistically a little bit of the difference between them because of how like Peter, Susan, Edmund, and Lucy are the main characters in the middle of the story, but yeah. written first, right? Like all three, the three books, well, the two books with Peter and Susan, and then the three with the four of them, and then the Voyages of Dawn is just Edmund and Lucy. It makes sense that they were written together at least, even yes. if not first. Yeah. But they were first. Anyway. It's just kind of funny. I Because I guess I kind of knew that, but I didn't really think about it. Because when I actually read Narnia... So you know what? I actually would have read Magician's Nephew before Lion, the Witch, and Wardrobe. Yeah. Because I would have oh, had Oh, did a, you? I had a set. Oh, so you actually read Magician's... So yeah. So my mom read this one first to ah, us. Yeah. It's possible that my mom did too. But I definitely... Rem- I do remember watching an animated version of Lion, the Witch, and Wardrobe before I read it. Oh, so okay. I kind of knew the story before, but then of course my parents were like, "Well, here's Narnia. Yes, <laughs> you're not allowed to watch any movies or play any Nintendos <laughs> or read. do anything on any computers." But here's some books for you to read, kind of thing. So <laughs> now we have a podcast on books. <laughs> well, you know, there's uh, everything is an investment if you think about it the right way. <laughs> That's true. That's true. So I don't think there's a massive need for a plot rundown, but no. I still feel like you okay. can give a bare bones version of I'll it. Give a, yeah. So a really uh, simple version is. There's uh, four children, Peter, Susan, Edmund, and Lucy, and that's their age order as well. And they're out in the country during the war because London's being bombed and lots of parents sent their kids away for for those trying times. And they feel pretty excited because they get to stay in this gigantic mansion with huge grounds. And they're they're like, oh, we're going to have so much fun. Uh, But the first day it's raining. So Lucy ends up hiding in a wardrobe where then she discovers Narnia because she kind of walks through the wardrobe and then Narnia through the wardrobe, right? <laughs> and uh, and I mean, that's just created... It's almost... It's not quite as like powerful an image as through the looking glass kind of thing from Alice in Wonderland, but like it's the next closest Oh, yeah. It's like thing. iconic. It's like through the wardrobe, yeah. right? It's like a paradigm shift. Yeah, a room. Yeah, like, yeah it's a... And, and that's, I think, one of the beauties of what C.S. Lewis did. While you're right, he was simple. He's created ideas that penetrate into the very souls of people. And so, uh, you know, Lucy tries to convince everyone she was in the world. Edmund ends up going and then lying about it with her. And then they all end up in Narnia. And through a series of events, they meet Aslan because of some beaver friends. <laughs> uh, when they meet Aslan, Edmund has already betrayed them to the witch. But then Edmund is saved. Because Edmund had also been there. Lucy had been first by herself. Second time, Lucy went, but Edmund also got in. And the third time, all four of them are in. Yeah, Narnia. but Edmund met the witch the, the first time he was in. The witch asked him to bring everyone and promised to make him a king. And there's some really interesting stuff there that we'll get into later. But because 
Edmund becomes a traitor and tries to turn over his family and, and the beavers. There's a deep magic, a, a rule in the universe of Narnia in which uh, if a traitor does something, then the white witch uh, gets to kill them on the stone table. So essentially, then Aslan, who is the Christ figure in this narrative. Do you, you say Aslan? Yeah. I have always said Aslan. 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 No, it probably is Aslan, actually. Well, but I don't know. Yeah. There's no way well, I, I said know. Aslan. What, they, but they would have to say it in the movie. Do, yeah, did you ever see the movies? I did see the movies, but I don't remember how they pronounce it. I'm going to say Aslan. Cause that's... Okay. That's fine. <laughs> okay. So anyway. no tomato, right? <laughs> so, <laughs> so essentially, Aslan offers himself up as a sacrifice to take the place of Edmund. Then Aslan is resurrected by the deeper magic. And that the White Witch is not aware, aware of. of. Then he proceeds to um, bring back to life all the statues that she's made with her wand, because that's one of the things she, one of her powers, is that she could just turn people into stone, and brings all the people he <laughs> he has uh, brought back to life into the battle, and they they crush uh, the White Witch, and then all four of the children are crowned kings and queens of Narnia, and they end up going back after many years, which, based on space-time continuums and, and it's bubble like, universes... is like five minutes like in a, the real yeah, world. like a few hours or something. Yeah. Man, in this rereading, I was just blown away by how good C.S. Lewis is at world-building. Like, just making assumptions and just presenting them as facts, as if... One of the things I noticed is there was never a moment... Where Peter and Susan and Edmund and Lucy question why a beaver was talking. <laughs> like That's true. They weren't shocked by things. Well, there was a I think there's a line in there, it's like it might not have been about animals. No, I think they said it about the robin. Right. Lucy says something like, mm, it almost looks like it wants to talk to us <laughs> kind of thing, like, you know? Maybe it does. Yeah, maybe yeah, it yeah. does, you know. And the thing is, like, when you're listening to it as a kid, you are transported into another world. And it's amazing. I mean, I remember being so excited about that world. This was My mom read this to me before she read The Hobbit or I was even introduced to Lord of the Rings. She actually, like, structured that pretty well. She introduced mm. me to C.S. Lewis and then, you know, Hobbit and then, and then Lord of the Rings. Now that I, when I read it, I'm like, oh, you know, how do they all read English? <laughs> like, <laughs> I'm thinking about the world building. How side do they all it. know everything that a kind of like educated British person would know yeah. <laughs> about anything? Right. And, and how is Peter suddenly so good at sword fighting that he's like full on doing battle with the White Witch? <laughs> like, <laughs> Part of the deeper magic, yeah, I guess. For sure. Despite my more modern, maybe, or and, and adult, I guess I would say my more adult proclivities now i still just so enjoy the childlike wonder that he presents it reminds me of being a kid mm-hmm. and i mean and i don't think that's just because i mean it's for kids the experience of reading it just feels there's a wholesomeness to it that i think is just lost to the world right now in a lot of ways mm-hmm. i mean it, i kind of jokingly brought up stars before but now as i'm thinking about this this is a kind of straightforward good versus evil story. Yeah. This In is a an, way, Star Wars is also is that way. Yeah. Right? I also noticed, too, I love how these British writers describe food. Oh, I know. Like, did you get that out of the soup? Yeah. Right? 
They, also, I was like, these beavers are eating ham and fish. I was like, are the fish not sentient? Like, they don't get to... <laughs> well, there are, as we learn in later books, there are animals in Narnia that are don't talk. That's true. And it is okay to hunt them. Yeah. And they go hunting a stag at the end. So but, presumably it's but not only a to talking catch him to give to give wishes. Oh, that's right. That's right. <laughs> so. But I think there are... I do f- think they eat. Yes. Well, you they know? seem to eat meat. Yeah. And they eat everything. Okay. So the first thing I really was struck by and enjoyed if you do read this again like tempering your expectations isn't exactly right like this is a book written for kids you know and so like that kind of aspect of it is i don't know do you ever have that feeling when you go back to something you had as a kid and you're like this isn't how i remember it the quality of line the witch of the wardrobe is how i remember it but the way it is done is not no because because it's a lot simpler than it hasn't run wild with you in the same way i think when at least for me my imagination wasn't running wild like it was when i was a kid uh with wonder Mm -hmm. and that's something that i want to get into well i also wonder if part of that is because we've seen it visualized in movies or in a movie now. Yeah. Like, have you seen the Narnia movies? Yeah, and I yeah. actually enjoyed the, the yeah. movie, the, the first uh, one. I didn't enjoy... Um, Prince Caspian? Prince Caspian as much. Uh, did you see... They also but did the Voyage of the, of the Dawn, Dawn Treader was good. I liked Voyage of the Dawn... Voyage of the Dawn Treader was always my favorite Narnia book. I felt like they left some really important parts out yes, of... I agree. ...the Voyage of the Dawn Treader like movie. really important parts. And I was like, a, I was disappointed, but the parts of it that were in it were great. And of course, Reaper Cheap is just so iconic and classic so i thought they did a phenomenal job with uh the line the witch in the wardrobe though mm-hmm. was, yeah they I did i was very pleased with that but first thing i got out of this one on the reread that i loved like i just i i, I don't know there's something about lucy at the beginning that was so great is because when she first goes to narnia and comes out well for her it's like a whole afternoon at tumna at mr tumnus's house but for the other kids like because of that space-time continuum <laughs> discord it's only like a couple seconds for them and Edmund, of course, is teasing her because he's a bit of a bastard. You found another world in the cupboards. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. And Peter and Lucy give her all of her opportunities to say it was a joke or she's just playing. But she doesn't recant her story because it's true, right? And I loved that. Like, I loved that she, despite all the pressures around her, they weren't like real hard pressures, but there were social pressures from her siblings to be like, well, okay, come on, Lucy joke's gone far enough kind of thing like even peter and susan who like lucy a lot more than they like edmund their patience is eventually going to run out for what they think is nonsense you know and does wear out rather quickly actually yeah and it could be something like lucy eventually is just like man am i am i gaslighting myself well there's even a moment where she's it says that she was pretty convinced it might have just been a dream Mm -hmm. but she doesn't she doesn't betray her own experience do you know what i mean yeah and i love that I love that aspect of her like kind of strength. Be like, well, no, I actually did this, and I don't care if anyone else doesn't believe me. I did I it. I know yeah. it happened, and I'm not going to even sell out she's my miserable own mind. About it. Yeah, even though she's miserable about it, she's still like, no, I'm not. Yeah, I'm not going to sell out my own mind. Now, I don't think Lucy, at her age, would have been able to think about it like this. But why that I think resonates in our minds is that she would be selling her inner piece of her own principles or of her experience just to pacify others around her kind of thing right yeah like now it's not such a big deal for the people around her and yet the price of that is her own well kind of her own sanity but also her own truth like her own vitality i don't want to say her own truth because it was like what happened i mean 
again, we're in the rules of a book, so, but it's, it's the truth, right? Like it's what happened to sell out the truth, I think is corrosive to a soul. Yeah. And she can't do that to herself and she sticks up for herself in that way. And I was like, that is such an integral thing to do. Yeah, even when, if you know something, and I also love, and I'm sure you remember this, but the conversation that Peter and Susan have with the professor. Oh, yeah, I love that uh, part. It's so good. Who and, we like, find out later is Diggory? Yes, yes Diggory. The guy who, the first ever human in Narnia. <laughs> Which is amazing. And and a great... Uh, tie-in. Yeah, a right? great tie-in. Like, this is one of the things that... Uh, that C.S. Lewis ends up being kind of a, a genius at is tying right, his whole yeah. story together. Yeah. Especially when he just kind of wrote it on a whim and then he, and then he ties this world together. You know, he's like, well, is she normally a liar? Mm-hmm. Like, like, who would you normally trust? Her or Edmund? And they're like, well, normally we'd always trust Lucy. Like, she's she's the one that tells... You know, they're almost honest. like they they laugh a little bit at the question because of how absurd it strikes them even though it's like a totally legitimate question to ask and then he's like and you know well she's not insane because we like he's like i've I've been watching her she hasn't gone insane like she isn't acting like an insane person mm-hmm. so that really only leaves one because mm-hmm. like lucy is more commonly telling the truth than edmund and they have a disagreement over what happened and she's not mad. So maybe she's telling the truth. And I mean, this definitely puts both Peter and Susan on the back heel because they're kind of like weirded out by the fact that someone who they have to trust or like look up to, at least this professor is giving them an option as a, as a real option where they're like, but that's insane. Yeah. <laughs> like wardrobes. There's not like as a, worlds as a, in wardrobes. As a humorous aside, this was actually kind of what I did a lot as a teacher in Korea. I would have my kids head spinning in class because they'd be like, well, he's a teacher. So he's someone who knows things and I must respect, but he's acting in a way that no other teachers act. So I don't really know what to do right now. Teacher, you yeah. so silly. Teacher, what is, te- well, what did they say? So in Korea, there isn't a natural occurring sound in the Korean language that I noticed or came across that is equivalent to our Z sound. So the Z sound is, isn't, so it's a really hard sound for them to make when they're learning English. And so they would mostly say a Z sound like a J. So instead of Z, it'd be J, right? Right. So teach a crazy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's so, what it was. Teach so crazy. <laughs> teach kind, but very strangey and crazy. <laughs> And then I would work on their pronunciation yeah, with them. I like and they it. would get better. And then by the end, like I knew it was a success if they could be like, teacher is very kind, but strange and crazy. Yes. Yes. <laughs> then you're like, I'm winning. Success. <laughs> but yeah, like that that kind of feel is what I feel like Peter and Susan are feeling about the professor when he says that. You yeah, know? they're like, this guy's nuts. <laughs> <laughs> but but we should respect him because he's, yeah. you know, our So I, I don't know. Like I think it's just a useful thing to notice how compromising on the truth to placate and pacify people around you it's soul corroding yeah you know and lucy's not having any of that well and we see that with edmund like his lies are kind of corroding his soul i mean obviously again and again this is a kid's book and and lewis hits this nail on the head repeatedly interestingly enough the argument for why lucy's not insane is an apologetic argument that he's actually presenting right because there's the lunatic liar or lord have you ever heard of that apologetic uh, in the for Christi- in the Christian sense? Yeah. Okay, yeah. So it's like was was Jesus a lunatic and thought he was God? Was <laughs> he a liar, or was he God? Right. Yeah. And those are the three options yeah. that they present. Right? Interesting. So, well, so. 
That's, he, he weaves these in throughout the entire book, right? Like over and over again. We should have a side podcast called Theology 101 with David Parker. Yeah, well done. Where you tie in theological arguments from things in the stories. <laughs> yeah, that would I would be, not have known that. Yeah, no, I'm... Well, I learned a lot about this. The benefits of being a preacher's up. kid, yeah, eh? Exactly. <laughs> but, okay, so in my... We're talking about the Turkish delights. When yeah, like when he's the, first in Narnia oh. and he comes across see, the White Witch and the dwarf driving it. This is something that I really love that Lewis does that I don't feel like a lot of, to the same degree, modern authors are doing. They're, they're, they're creating a lot more ambiguity for children. There's no ambiguity in what Lewis is saying. He's like, okay, I'm going to teach you about addiction. Mm-hmm. And he's like, and this is how addiction is used against you, and this is how it works. Well, addiction and how clearly someone will pretend to care about you to get something out of you. Yeah, right? exactly. And he just he, he lays it all out there for you. He's like, well, there was this magical thing about these Turkish delights, and it was that you would eat them happily until you died. Mm-hmm. Like you all, and all you would think yeah. about was these, was these Turkish delights. And even and, the way he describes Edmund afterwards, oh, it's like he's a, like almost like he's like, like kind of strung mind. out a little yeah. bit out of it. Well, yeah. and my favorite part is he's like got he's got these Turkish delights all over his face, and he's like looking pudgy and red because he's just been basically stuffing his face. And the queen's saying, "Oh man, I've never met." A young man as more dignified yeah, and intelligent and handsome young exactly. man. <laughs> like clear like like it's just flattery, straight up flattery, and he's taking it, right? You know what though? In Star Wars, there's no ambiguity. Yeah. It, at least at the beginning. When no. Darth Vader walks into the Tantive, he's, the bad, he's the bad guy. You just know it. When the white witch pulls up in the sled, she's the bad guy. Yeah. <laughs> there's you no know confusion. And there's honestly, when you're hearing it as a kid, but even now you're like, Edmund, what are you doing? Like, she's so obviously not good. And Lewis even references it later in the book when Edmund, Edmund knows in his heart that the witch is bad. But you know why he's blinded? Because he wants something from her. Well, well but more do, than one do you know why he wants something from her? Like, I think the deepest reason why Edmund goes down the betrayal or the, the crappy path that he goes down first is he's clearly resentful. Yes. And right? very resentful of Peter. He's very resentful. He's mad that Lucy seems to be have more strength of character than him. And he's mad that Peter teases him about it. Well, and like, calls him out even more than teasing. Mm-hmm. He's like, wow, you're, you're being, calls him beastly and like calls yeah. him, says, wow, you're being nasty. There is a plethora of things of what, Edmund is doing at the beginning of this book and early on in this book. And I think one of the more hidden ones, because like I, I like that addiction one and we'll I want to talk about that more too, or at least like figure out what Lewis is maybe talking about with that. But I think I would have got that though as a twelve year old reading it. I would not have gotten the resentment. No. Uh, no, you don't part of that Even as he, a twelve year old. It's fairly hinted at. Mm-hmm. Right. He's like he brings it out. Yeah. But it's because I think that I have a lot more life experience now that I can see I don't know. It's just it's not polite to talk about resentment as a prime motivating force in human affairs <laughs> but yeah, I, but no. i my personal experience and thought is that i actually think it's one of the most common motivating forces and you want to talk about soul corrosion resentment destroys everything it destroys the person who resents and it destroys the people who are resented are resented because it's such a powerful force to take something down Edmund is willing to sell out his family to death for what he says is Turkish delight. Turkish delight, I think, really is a stand-in for him just destroying Peter. 
Well, and because he wants to be king. And like, there's even that moment where uh, it's describing describing his internal dialogue. And this is something I love that Lewis does that I don't find a lot of authors do. He he kind of embraces the role of narrator mm. in a way that most don't. Like, he just straight up tells you things. Yeah. Right? He's like, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> and so he's like, ass Edmund is kind of trudging through the snow after he's left the beaver or the beaver lodge and and getting there it's like and he convinced himself that nothing bad would happen to mm-hmm. them, that they would just yeah. be minor punishments yeah that's just rationalizations yes yeah, right exactly. and like clearly lewis has done all that and then of course when he meets up with lucy again because after the white witch leaves and after she says to edmund hey bring the other son of adam and daughters of eve back because she knows the prophecy about how if they sit at care paravel then she loses her power, so she wants to kill them, I guess, probably. Because then the prophecy can't come true. Yeah. Like, this and then is a she's world in power forever. Prophecies are, again, this is a world in which prophecies come true and have a deep power or deep magic. And so the witches... Or, if we're going to put our American gods spin on it, everyone believes they'll come yes. true. So and they that, act in a way that bring them about. Well, and interestingly, uh, the witch knows that the, the, that her subjects believe this prophecy. Mm. So she thinks if she kills these four mm-hmm. or even one, because she symbols. tries to kill, she's going to kill. She kills the symbol exactly. So there's a, there is that as another way of looking at it. So when Lucy shows up and she warns Edmund about, she's gone to visit Tumnus again, and she warns Edmund about the witch. Uh, because Mr. Tumnus had originally said he was going to turn her in, but then not. So Lucy already knows about the White Witch, even though she's never met her and knows she's bad. And Lucy says, well, uh, Tumnus said she's evil. And of course, Edmund, who's like being a little bit of a whiny little kid right now, says, you can't trust a fawn. Everyone knows it. And I just wrote down like, that's not an argument. You're just appealing to authority. Like everybody knows it. And like Lucy's young, right? So mm-hmm. this is her older so brother saying it's that. like it's like a bully tactic, right? It's a bully argument tactic to say, well, everybody knows that. Well, you need. <laughs> it's funny to put Edmund to this level of criteria, but it's, you need outside variables and you need outside criteria because everybody knows things that are wrong all the time. Yeah, <laughs> right. And they're maybe wrong. What's right? that expression? Um, 50,000 out of 50,000 flies say shit is great. <laughs> right? It's right, like, okay. Well, yeah. you, well you, need, you need more criteria of what yes. you're talking about, not just social opinion. Yeah. <laughs> right? Because I mean, like, that can be very as easily in a negative direction as in a positive jumped one. off a cliff, you know, everyone knows jumping off a cliff is fine. Would you do it? Who knows? Right? Um, if you were talking in the 1830s, everyone would have known that black people had to be slaves. Yeah. Right? I mean, like, we talked about this in our Huck Finn. Yeah, exactly. Like, exactly. like that's like, it, but so like the transparent non-starter of that statement is I think a good clue for the psychological happenings going on in Edmund's brain. And like in the story, Lucy's a little bit like, hmm, what? Like she's taken aback by Edmund's resistance to listen to her kind of thing because Lucy is so good that she even believes in the goodness of Edmund, even though he hasn't dis- I know, demonstrated super any happy, of it. Super happy that Edmund's just because he's the brother, right? He, her brother's there now. He's been there. He knows that it's real, and he can tell everyone. And you know, she. I mean, the betrayal of Edmund to Lucy is actually viscerally emotional for a kid, yeah. particularly. Like I remember thinking, "Wow, Edmund!" Like, 
how could you do this? Like a straight up lie like that. Well, I think that's probably why Lucy especially, but also Peter and Susan, the three of them's forgiveness of Edmund is so powerful. Yeah. Because of his... And then he's gone and betrayed them and almost killed them. Yeah, like he's got two betrayals, basically. And yet he comes back so... Like the prodigal son. I mean, whatever. Let's just throw every single (laughs) parable and proverb from the Bible in here because it's in here somewhere. (laughs) Yeah, Yeah, he's he's woven a lot of them together here. Uh, But I just loved also that Lucy seems like a much older person than she is because of how her kind of more higher level thinking and like emotional thinking is going on here too, where Lucy believes in Edmund with really no reason to. She believes in Edmund when Edmund Edmund doesn't believe in the goodness of Edmund. Yeah. She's singing the song of his heart when he's forgotten it. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. And I and I think there's like a great inverse proportion there between how despicable Edmund is being is how admirable Lucy is being. Like and I think there's probably something narrative there too, where like if you have a character going that bad, it's so much more emotionally impactful to have someone on their side who's that good kind of thing because yeah. the betrayal is so much harsher, but then so much more ad- I don't know. The redemption's so much yeah, more. Yeah. Exactly. More it's more cathartic. Because Lucy's forgiveness of Edmund would not have been as impactful as it was if while he was being crappy, she was just like, you're being crappy. Yeah, I hate you. Yeah, like she's she's pointing out, if she was pointing out truths, but like in a snappy or kind of like... Kind of like Deprecating way. Yeah, like Peter does, right? Like I don't... You do have to feel a little bit while it's going. I was like, Peter, I get it. Edmund is being crappy, but like you need to be better. To really wield the authority that you deserve to wield over Edmund, to earn it, to earn the authority that you would get to tell him what to do, you need to behave better than that because you are pushing him. I mean, Edmund has agency He and he lets his resentment get the better of him. But he got no favors from Peter in the way Peter treated him. No. You know? Peter was always just kind of, uh, it was definitely that older brother, you know, oh, you're an idiot. Stop being an idiot. And like, what's wrong with you? Why are you being an idiot? <laughs> Not teaching him how to be better. And yeah. actually, it's interesting because Peter says to Aslan when he first meets him, he's like, I may be part of the reason mm-hmm. that he betrayed us. It's a moment of leadership in the most profound way because he takes, again, he takes responsibility mm-hmm. For his part, he doesn't blame Edmund. Yeah. He takes responsibility for his part of why Edmund did. Well, like it. if it's ninety five percent Edmund, five percent Peter, Peter, Peter takes doesn't responsibility just, for that five percent. Yeah, he doesn't just say, you know what, it's ninety five percent Edmund, whatever. Like he he notices it and he tries to improve for next time, which is like really all you can do <laughs> in life. Yeah, you know, and yeah. but I think that that's again symbolic by Lewis because it's only when Aslan shows up where he kind of gets that like that light bulb goes off in his head. You know, you don't yeah. really get that kind of sense of self-reflection from Peter about any of it until the great greatness yeah. <laughs> shows up to influence him, you know? So this is definitely not a political story. No. It's much more allegorical and even a little bit psychological. But there was one part of it that I got. I got an inkling, <laughs> you might say, of Lewis throwing in some political of the time feel and that was how Malgram, the wolf is the head of the secret police yes so it's not even the police and his job is basically to hunt down yeah yeah. it's the secret police i don't know this because i don't i don't i'm not a historian and i definitely would not research something like this for a a podcast because that take take way (laughs) too much work work. (laughs) i wouldn't know by 1950 how much 
the public would know about things like the Gestapo. Maybe they would know a lot. I mean, I guess they probably would I think would've. they would. it would be kind of know. exposed. Yeah. And the thing was that uh, Lewis was a soldier, right, and had been in the trenches in the First World War. Oh, okay. So he had a he had a pretty deep understanding. So he probably knew a little bit about how secret police worked and how they devastate a free society. And so with Mulgram being a secret police, which are essentially not bound by the rules of anyone except the dictator, I thought it was so symbolic how... Peter's first foray into battle was to kill the head of the secret police because then, especially if you consider how Peter becomes the great king, right? He's the leader of Narnia. So the great king or the archetype of the wise king, his first action to become that way is to get rid of the creature that is probably other than the white witch most responsible for the people of the land not feeling free you know and the absolute necessity of a of a real leader to remove the things that cause fear and anxiety of the uh, if we want if you want to have free subjects you can't have a secret police well and here's another interesting aspect of it the from the very beginning you're given this sense of a pervasive evil, and the pervasiveness of the evil is that nobody knows who's on the witch's side. Which trees are good, which, which are bad. We know yeah. most of the trees are good, but we don't know which ones are bad. <laughs> she has spies everywhere. And that would have had to have been probably influenced by his knowledge of Nazi Germany, and maybe even a little bit of the Soviet well, Union. Well, the Soviet Union then. was kind of rising at that point. You have to consider he was at Oxford teaching. He was among the intelligentsia of his day. Right, uh, yeah. And so he would probably be hearing about stuff like this. And, about and I mean, he was around during Orwell's time. He was around during when, like, all of the like, when freedom was becoming important. And even there's a very brief at the end. Yeah, 1984 would have come out just a year before this one was yes. published. Yeah, yeah. So, and even at the end... When he describes the kind of society that you know that the kids rule over, he describes a very free and almost libertarian esque society. Yeah, it is, isn't it? <laughs> where it's like the, they don't know, have the any police don't have now. To go to school. <laughs> There's like no army. Yeah. Well, except for when they're fighting the giants in the mm. north or whatever. But I love the sense of um, he gives such a good sense of fear, mm. like what it's like yeah. to fear. It's like, oh no! What, what he gives a sense of what it's like to live in an oppressive society. Yeah, with a, so few words, he makes you feel that oppressiveness. Mm-hmm. The beaver's afraid. The robin can't talk. Tumness is is a is a double agent. Yeah, right. Like all of these people are the society. You don't know who you itself, can trust. You yeah, don't know you so can't. oppressive. And he he, and the oppress and the oppressiveness is the evil. And of course, you know, there's a simplicity to like the ogres and the hags and all these people being the servants of the white witch or at least her allies really what he's getting at is that these people they take away everyone's joy and they make them live in fear mm-hmm. yeah i know we've talked about this in other episodes so i'm not going to drone on about it here but just my kind of current intellectual hobby horse intellectual moral hobby horse is a more mentally free person and the tangible ways that not being able to even know if you can trust the person beside you is like, it's just, it's anxiety on speed. <laughs> you yeah. know? Well, imagine if like, you don't even know your family's going to betray you mm-hmm. to right? Like mm-hmm. that's how it was in communist. It's no, Russia, a- it's like. no accident that Lewis portrays this Narnia under the witch as not just having police, but secret police. Yes. Because 
I mean, it's basically you're not beholden to anything. Like you couldn't. I mean, can you subpoena a secret police? And she literally, <laughs> and, and she literally says to Malgram, like, just go and kill them. Mm-hmm. Like, <laughs> yeah, kill yeah. Them. There's no subtlety at all there, right? <laughs> I just wanted to add one other thing. I noted with the Turkish delight and the addiction and how. So when Edmund shows up to the castle and Mulgrim is the only non-turned-to-stone animal he sees in the courtyard. He thinks he's stone when he's yeah. trying to step over him. Like, that's he, such a scary moment. Oh, yeah. <laughs> As a kid, for sure, that's a scary moment. In the movie, it was a little bit scary, too. And then when he asks for food and he gets, like, water and a dried bread and he's like, I want Turkish delight. Like, he's being still, like, a whiny little bitch about it there. I just made the note of a – it's a, probably a common expression, but I remember when I heard it the first time in Korea from some, a friend there, it was very arresting to me. It's comparison is the thief of joy. Ooh. Now, I'm not going to say dry, crusty bread and water should necessarily put joy in a person's heart, but he was pretty hungry. <laughs> it's better than nothing. Yeah, and it's know? funny that even the witch is like, you're, you're probably going to be thankful for that before this is all done. Yeah, like, but I mean, like, I would even put it into more... When I was younger, like, probably early 20s going to concerts i would have a great time at the show but and it's partly just a bandy about with your friends but i always be like oh man i wish they played this song you know or oh they, why didn't they play that song and now i'm just like if i go to this show and i have a great time i don't care yeah <laughs> you know i don't care yeah. if they didn't play some of the songs i didn't i would have loved that or songs that i love by them but they didn't play like whatever because now i'm i'm making the best the enemy of the good yeah you know and that's just a, that's a royal road to despair well it goes sadness. back to what i was saying about the it was awesome that my parents got me those cross-country skis but i let it wasn't the, the their gift wasn't the problem no i no. was the problem yeah, it was your attitude yeah. yeah yeah and well obviously the witch is a problem yes but yes. from an allegorical side edmund's attitude is the problem and yeah a really big problem Hey everybody, David and I just want to take a second to say thank you for listening. Making this podcast has been a great experience, and we really appreciate all of you who choose to spend some time with us. Part of our goal is to be super open about everything we talk about on the podcast. If you have any questions, concerns, thoughts, ideas, feedback, clarifications, or praise, please send us an email at reallytruefiction at gmail.com. We would love to hear from you. Also, if you get your podcasts on iTunes or Spotify, don't forget to subscribe to the show so you get notified when a new episode is released. If you feel so inclined, please leave a rating or review on iTunes. That is a really good way to help new listeners find the show. And please pass the show along to anyone who you think may enjoy it. Again, thank you so much for listening, because as I'm sure you have gathered, we love talking. So then I guess that's going to move us into the double scenes with Father Christmas, why we're doing this on Christmas. Um, How? Because... The very first, well, one of the very first things Tumnus says about Narnia is that it's always winter, never Christmas. And that's how she holds her power over everything. I mean, how depressing is that? Well, of? and think, think of it this way. Communist Russia, they outlawed Christmas. Yeah. Because it was a religious holiday. Even though the more you learn about it, it's like, well, it's actually a German pagan holiday. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Actually, uh, here's a, this is a really cool thing I learned do you know what it was called before it was called Christmas in the Germanic Winter pagan tribes? Claus. 
No. Uh, well, now I'm putting myself out on a limb because I actually only researched this on Wikipedia, but I believe it was called Yuletide. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, oh, you're right. You're right. Which is and why the, Yuletide the Yuletide happy Yuletide yeah. is why it's... Yeah, it was a Yuletide tree yeah, before yeah. it was a Christmas tree kind well, of thing. Well, that's the funny thing. It's like, what does a tree have to do with Jesus' birth? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Nothing. <laughs> yeah. And I mean... But it's a tradition that, yeah. uh, you know, that's older, actually. Well, and actually, I mean, and this is a whole other topic we could talk about some other time about how... Of all of the savvy moves the church has done throughout its 2,000-year reign, one of the savviest was to figure out which pagan holidays to incorporate into Christianity and which ones to not. Yes. And it's like, wow, man, this is a really powerful holiday in this part of Europe. Let's just make it ours so that we can get all these heathens onto our team, too. Well, and the (laughs) symbolism is crazy. So I actually wrote a note about this on Facebook a long time ago. But the reason that Christmas is so significant in the North... Nardia and the North, right? There's a there's an idea of northernness that's so important to the British, to the European psyche, to the mm. to the English yeah. speaking world psyche. The even. forest in the winter. The forest in the winter. And why it's important, Christmas is particularly important in the north, is because Christmas falls almost exactly at winter solstice. Yeah. This is the darkest, most terrible time of the year. Yeah. Like, are we going to make it through? Mm-hmm. You're at the middle of the worst of it. It's cold. So like almost like go archetypally, it's when you need a party. It's when you need, it's, <laughs> yeah, it's when you need a party and you need a rebirth and you need you need a birth of hope. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And 25th, four days after, the days are getting longer. Yeah. We we believe that the winter will end. Hope is coming. Yeah. Yeah. Like there's a great episode of Doctor Who about Christmas. Uh, and yes, I'm a Doctor Who fan. Yes. <laughs> But there's a great episode of one of the quotes in it is basically like, what is Christmas about? Christmas is about the promise Mm -hmm. that, you know, even in the darkest time, there's light. Oh, yeah. Yeah, it's beautiful. And that's, again, of course, why it's so important in Narnia. (laughs) It's like, yeah, well, there's hope coming finally. And Aslan is on on the move. move. (laughs) (laughs) So then Father Christmas shows up. So the beavers and the three other kids have left the beaver dam house they're hiding in a kind of other cave father christmas shows up he this is where he gives them the gifts right like peter's sword and shield susan's bow and horn and lucy's dagger and cordial and the kind of twin and that's great because father christmas is really funny in that scene he's just jovial and himself and the parallel scene to that i think is when the white witch and edmund when they're going on the they, sled and it's not working upon and the, they stumble upon this party and you know, it's the Fox and the squirrel and the little squirrels and a couple other animals. I can't remember. And the queen gets so angry because they admit that it's father Christmas. I mean, I, I, I did kind of notice like this feels really foolish <laughs> of these animals <laughs> to be doing this still with the white witch around. I mean, her power is breaking, but she's not defeated yet. <laughs> like you're being yeah. a little bit brazen here. <laughs> But whatever, you're having a you're having a good time. Maybe they had so, uh, enough sherry to not care. Yeah. And she turns him to stone and I actually noticed this was the moment that turned Edmund. Yeah. back into his jolted him back into the self he always was but wasn't then. He is pretty devastated that she would hurt them like this. And he just imagining them sitting there and mm-hmm. it, like there's that great mental image that Lewis paints where he's like he imagines them sitting there for year after year. And like growing moss on them, and like all of their joy and happiness kind of impossibly taken away. Which, fortunately, we know is not what happens yes. to them. <laughs> yes. I, I liked that for the turning of Edmund, but uh, the compare I don't know. and contrast, you're right, is really mm-hmm. good. And I think on that note, going back to what we were saying, 
why does she so upset with them? And she's so upset because they are now a symbol of her power waning. And that's why she's angry. And I think back to, like, why would dictators, why why would um, evil people, let's call them, Mm -hmm. why would they care about something like Christmas? Well, they would care because they want people to know that they're all-powerful and by taking the thing that they're celebrating away, by taking... Something that they can't control. You can't control celebration. Uh huh. And if and if you're celebrating something else, it suggests that there's something else that's important to people. Well, I think it's something approximating like a political theory. By definition, almost a dictator is like a top-down approach to people's lives. Yes. <laughs> right. Yeah. yeah. And the things that come out of human culture are emergent. So in that sense, they're pre-dictated. So they are not immune to the rules of the dictator. So there's no negotiation with them, I guess is what I'm saying, right? Like we talked about in Robin Hood, there isn't a negotiation with humor because humor comes before. it bubbles up yeah. from the culture, yes. And so does holidays and celebrations and emergent forms of human togetherness and association. So because these are going to happen and then things are going to be said about the dictator, which, and I mean, in Chernobyl, they put it perfectly in the Soviet Politburo where they say our power stems from the perception of our power. Things that undermine the perception of power are, I think the great Hitchens lines is these are things that can break, but can't bend. <laughs> yeah, like, so well, let's take- turning that expression on its head to say, so you can't negotiate with these things, but you can stamp them out. Like that's your only course of action. If you want control over people. Yeah. Cause as soon as people, as soon as some little kid, says the emperor has no clothes. That's it for the emperor. The emperor can't go back to not having walked down that street naked. Mm -hmm. And really, I think the profundity of the emperor has no clothes story, Mm -hmm. and even the story where we're dealing with the witch in, in Narnia, there are rules that are deeper that if you don't follow them, and this goes back to American gods too. Yeah. And it's kind of like my, my whole belief of power coming from belief well, it does. And I see this in politics all the time. If, if a leader, if people will openly mock the leader, if people within an organization will openly mock the leader of that organization, the leader's done. Yeah, it's toast. It's, it's over. It's just a matter of time now because they're not afraid of this person anymore. There, there, there's, no re, there's no respect and there's no belief in that person's ability to accomplish whatever I mean, hopefully, it is the goal of the hopefully in 2019, modern Western democracy, it's respect and not fear. Keeping keeping someone's tongue from mocking. Let's take a let's take a um, a CEO of a company for example. If the employees aren't even scared, think of the person so ineffective and mocking them. It's it's like it's like when uh, Hiss is sitting there singing the song about Prince John, yeah. and then Prince John walks in, right? Yeah. At that point, Prince John has got to kind of know he's done, but he yeah. doesn't. He yeah. gets angry and he well, punishes. He's, he's delusional, right? Because there's yeah, <laughs> there's still fear there. But that's that's the thing. Yeah. You don't mock King Richard. No. Because you don't need to. Yeah. He is strong and effective and powerful and, and just, right? But as soon as a leader loses those qualities and, and becomes being mocked, and so so what I think the witch is doing here is she's sh- reminding people that, like she even says, my power may be waning, but, but it's, it's not. not gone. Yeah, yeah. And she's so like, watch out. And she says this when she's talking to, uh, I think she's talking to the dwarf. She's basically, I can still turn the army to stone. Mm-hmm. Right? Yeah. Like, I'm still super powerful, mm-hmm. and they're going to see that. And like all of her servants and allies know that. Mm-hmm. And then she's collecting them all together. And 
I feel like the scene of all of the horrible beasts that are on the side of the queen was actually the inspiration for the part in South Park in Imagination Land when all of the horrible creatures right, have strawberry yeah. shortcake yes. together because I was like, this is straight out of Narnia. Yeah. All of these like bulls with, yes. with clubs yeah, yeah, and all yeah, these horrible yeah. creatures. <laughs> yeah. And then, of course, the worst creatures in South Park are the woodland critters, which are all over Narnia. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> it's true. So I wonder, like I bet you Matt oh, and Trey probably. are very well versed in the Narnian lore. I would imagine. I think there was even snow in that part in there the South was, Park. There, was. <laughs> there you go. That's so perfect. I can't even remember why I made this note, but I made a note about the witch where part of her magic is to make things look like they aren't, yes, which is so temptation. After Malgram has been killed, Aslan sends his entire, or a bunch of, like a kind of an expeditionary force to save Edmund. Oh, yes. And in the meantime, she's about to sack, or just, she's about to kill Edmund to, to break the power of the prophecy. Yeah. But they show up just in time and they knock her, her knife out of her hand. And uh, yes. she immediately makes herself and her, her wand companion with her... No, no, it's her the knife that she's raised to kill Edmund. Oh, the wand. Yeah, the wand is later in the battle. Yes, yeah, yes in the battle. That's right. She makes herself look like a boulder and him like a stump. Ah, mm. uh, yes, yes. Uh, <laughs> and so that she can escape mm, from Yeah. Him. And I think... <laughs> I mean, this goes back to what you were just saying. The power to be perceived a certain way is power itself, mm-hmm. ultimately. But the thing is, once that illusion, if you can dispel that illusion, then it actually becomes a weakness. Yeah. Yeah. It's all about calling the emperor naked. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. Okay. So we'll just set up the last really big, which I actually think the whole point of this book is the deep magic and then the deeper magic, or at least the most powerful allegory in it. So Aslan takes the place of Edmund as the traitor. So he, an innocent, gives up his own life for a guilty See that? I wonder where that came from. I wonder where that came from. But then he also was aware of deeper magic, which I think was basically like, if an innocent does that, then they'll come back and be more powerful kind of thing. And this is, it's a really great scene, actually. The whole sequence is beautiful with Susan and Lucy, like their, their perspective of what's going on with Aslan. And I also loved, though I just have to say, I loved the part how it was all these little mice chewing the cords yeah. of the line because that's an Aesop fable. Yes. <laughs> right? Yeah, the, the mouse and the, talk, yeah, the lion and the mouse, this. how yeah. <laughs> the lion doesn't eat the mouse and then the mouse comes back later and chews the cords. And I just love that this was a direct little, It was. it's not even a nod and a wink to the fable, right? No, it's, it's, a a, it's a straight up comparison. Well, you know? and that's one of the, I think, the things that makes these stories so rich mm-hmm. is, I mean, it's not just an allegory of one story. Yeah. He's throwing... Well... Because <laughs> nobody loved literature and narrative more than C.S. Mm-hmm. Lewis. So obviously, Lewis would have known all of Aesop's fables. Like, originally, his his job was he was a literary critic. <laughs> yeah. And like he was yeah, an yeah, yeah. Oxford professor of literature, right? So it's like... And so in a not subtle allegory yes. <laughs> there is a not subtle allusion to yeah the to, to, to the aesop, aesop you yeah, know exactly. and so then and then all of that though is essentially well like i'll let you lay out the archetype going on here okay <laughs> yeah. so because uh, well, you'll, think... you'll be more eloquent about it <laughs> okay fair enough so i think this archetype i've always argued i think is the most important archetype not just to West, western civilization but potentially the greatest story that humans have ever told and it's the story that has raised the slave that that broke the idea of the strong do what they will the weak do what they must which you know was was the prevalent 
plausibility structure of humanity for a very long time. But how it was done, obviously, was, I mean, Aslan is a god, right? He's portrayed as a god. He has been around for generations. I mean, he is Jesus. Good but not tame. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, or wild but you know, not. You know, my, my ancestors used to talk about when he would come around, like the beavers say, what does God do when confronted by the obvious sin of being a traitor? And like, Lewis couldn't make it clearer that basically Edmund is a traitor. Edmund deserves his fate. Now, does he deserve to be killed? Well, you know, what? that's a different question, I suppose. But according to the deep magic of Narnia, that's the price that's paid. Well, he really hurt others. Yes. And like could have killed re- them. Yeah. It was only by circumstance that all his family wasn't killed by his traitorous actions. All for selfish reasons like, I want to be king. So essentially, it's drawing this dichotomy, which I think is incredibly important. And what you know has been said before, the, the line between good and evil goes through the heart of every man. Well, when, what, do you, what happens when you do evil? Right? Because we all know we do. So what happens when you do things that are wrong? How do you deal with the guilt and shame? What, what are you going to do? And Edmund can't really deal with it himself. He can't deal with the fact that he's going to be killed. And even Aslan can't violate the, the deeper mm-hmm. magic. Yeah. So what happens? The powerful being, the being that, that is beyond all other beings in this universe, offers itself up to pay for the scummy little kid's traitorous ways why well uh i think probably it's to demonstrate the power of forgiveness yeah would was what it struck me as it's to demonstrate that if god's willing to to take the punishment for edmund so if the god i.e aslan is willing to take the punishment for the sin that's forgiveness mm-hmm. at a well, whole that's, other level. It's, again, a lot of the things Jordan Peterson talks about become so clear when he explains it. It's like, well, the archetype of Jesus is essentially the person who least deserves it going through the most horrible experiences for the people who deserve it the most. Yeah. <laughs> kind of people thing. who deserve like, the horrible experiences. The, yeah. like the, the, he was saying the definition of an archetype is the limit. You can't imagine something beyond that in that realm, right? Like you can't imagine a worse fate for someone who least deserves it. Except, okay, you could, maybe Jesus gets a piece of his body chopped off every day. Right. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, like, yeah. like that could be worse, but crucifixion was no picnic. No, no. <laughs> so, and I mean, I guess in his case, you couldn't imagine a worse fate inside reality, right? Sure, yeah. Because I mean, he's also mm-hmm. flogged. And, yeah. and so we see in this story, though, there's some really important things going on, and it's what's being presented is what would it be like to walk with the person who was doing that? And I think that's one of the most, there's kind of three scenes in this book that I just feel are the most profound. The one is when they're walking with him towards the stone table, yeah. and he's like, I feel so alone. Can you guys grab my mane and like so I can mm. feel your presence? Which is very much kind of to mirror that whole garden of gethsemane yeah exactly where he's like god take this cup from me i don't want to i don't want to have to go and be crucified it's outlining that it's not easy to To be the savior (laughs) it's it's very very difficult to take responsibility for other people's failings 
almost nobody does that. Yeah. This actually goes back to a book I'm reading right now called Extreme Ownership, which is, you know, if you're into podcasts, you've probably heard of this Jacko guy, and I have only heard him once, but... I guess if I have a hobby horse right now, an intellectual hobby horse, it's radical responsibility. Mm. So one of the things I've noticed about not just myself, but a lot of people is, we've talked about this before, there's kind of two ways of viewing the world. It's like either I am just being affected by everything around me. I'm a product of my environment. I hate these things that are happening. I'm, I'm resentful of the outside world putting whatever it is on me or I blame my family or I blame it's blame it's blaming 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 and then there's responsibility taking where you could you'd say no like this is my fault and there's that great great line from Churchill where he said he was talking to a woman and she was having a hard time and he was at a dinner party with her and she said I really hope all of this is my fault and he said why and she said so I could fix it (laughs) yeah and because then you have an avenue of agency Exactly. Because you have, you have something you can go do to take steps to correct it. Yeah. And I think what we see here is a radical example, like you said, a limit case example of what it's like to take responsibility for even things that aren't your fault. Mm-hmm. To take the suffering onto yourself so that another doesn't have to do it. Mm-hmm. Like that's that's radical. Yeah. I mean, I think both you and I are relatively familiar with the Jesus story, and I actually am developing a deeper appreciation for it, for the psychological role it plays. So I want to float this thing by you that I have been thinking about a little bit, thinking about a little bit and hearing podcasts, and it's a little bit beyond my ken because I think it's a complicated idea, but I want to at least lay out the groundwork for it now. So... One of the really interesting things that I heard Douglas Murray talk about in a podcast recently when he was talking about his book, Madness of Crowds, was he is a relatively well-versed student of Hannah Arendt, the philosopher who was also writing in the very extreme post, very recent post-World War II world. And she was Jewish, so she (laughs) had a vested interest in the outcome of things like the Nuremberg Trials. And then she wrote that book, the I think it's The Trial of Eichmann. Or something like, uh, anyway, but, so she coined the term the banality of evil, yeah. how like yeah. the Nazis were just following orders type of thing while they were, while they were <laughs> pumping the crematoriums, you know? Yeah. And so anyway, one of the great things that he talked about was how Hannah Arendt talked about this idea of one of the hardest aspects of human life is that we have no choice but to go have action in the world. Like we just can't lie in bed all day socially psychologically spiritually that's going to do nothing for us so we have to go out into the world and do stuff now we couch it in things like getting a job or you know i'm going to go see a movie basically everywhere you go to do you have a particular socialized function to do that you know like you know that you can't just talk on the phone during a movie right where where that if someone does it just so stands out but she says, okay, so basically most of human life is action in the world. <laughs> like right. just a significant chunk of it was that. Also, we're a creature that m- the most accurate prediction you can make is that you're going to mess up. Right. <laughs> like we make mistakes all the time. True. It's, it's such a – so you have no choice but to have action in the world. And you're going to mess up. And you're going to mess up all the time. And your mistakes and your mess ups are going to negatively affect other people who aren't going to be thrilled that that's happening. Right. Wow. <laughs> so yeah. here's an inevitability, right? This is true. Okay. What do we do about that? Because we can't live in a way where 
We can't take action. We can't we, be frozen. We can't live by in a way fear. where we don't take action. We're gonna mess up. We're gonna make other people angry. Like this is just inevitability. And so she says, "Okay, we had to invent a concept, and that concept is called forgiveness." forgiveness. Right? We need forgiveness so that we can move on psychologically from other people's mess ups and our own mess ups. Right? And so that's why forgiveness is such a powerful thing. Uh, which is, it's so powerful to the extent that now we really recognize the negativity of holding a grudge, of not forgiving someone. Now, there's obviously layers and degrees, and there's different degrees, there's different degrees of infractions to forgive or not forgive, right? And that's reflected in our law, like there's first, second, third degree murder, manslaughter, whatever, right? So there's different, like there's more or less of an infraction. But even the deepest infractions, like think of the stories where people can forgive someone who murdered their child kind of thing. Yeah. Like that's the power of that is pretty unparalleled. Corey Tenboom. Do you remember reading about her? Yeah, I do up? remember yeah. that name. Yeah. Like she ended up in a concentration camp and forgave one of the guards. Yeah. My mom, that's one of my mom's heroes. And like, Honestly, what a civilizing force. And I want to say one of the, I, I, I'll, there's a the great line from um, the song, courage by tragically hip where it says the breakdown is the human tragedy is living with the consequences under pressure (laughs) under pressure yeah (laughs) you know and so here's here's the kind of more connection to line the witch and wardrobe and the jesus story that i want to make is that i wonder if one of the kind of passive roles that these stories that the jesus story especially has done for culture is to give a symbol of a motivating force to be able to motivate forgiveness en masse. You know, that line, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And I think that something, this this undersells it because it's it's more psychological and deep than this, but there's something to say about the social function of forgiveness. Oh, <laughs> sure, yes. Right? And so I, yeah, I was gonna if you want to put that into your society, what better way to do that than a deep archetype? Right. And so I think, and I'm not going to say this is all of it because it's a super deep story and it's perennial, it's Harry Potter, it's all in our canon forever, the Jesus Savior story. But I think one of the really positive side effects is that it's, it's basically... A, I can't think of a better word than a commercialization. It's a mass produced story for forgiveness. And it's right? like you, again, you said mm-hmm. it's an archetype and it's a limit case. Yeah. So, so not just does a really good guy mm-hmm. die. The the best guy. And not just a best guy, mm-hmm. but God. Yeah. Right. And the best God. Yeah. <laughs> the only God. <laughs> yeah. Right. Yeah. And in this case, we see him not just forgiving people for minor infractions. Mm-hmm. Or, you know, not just forgiving good people because really they're good. These are bad people yeah. that are killing him. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Interestingly enough, not how it really goes in Narnia, <laughs> yeah. right? It's it's for one guy, but I think there's there's a reason that Lewis did it that way. But, I mean, you can even symbolically take all of the things that are making Edmund, as it were, evil or at least shitty. Yeah. And it's not uncommon in humanity <laughs> no, <laughs> to see, no, right? No. So, and, and even like... Because Aslan is the character who promotes Peter to being his better self. You can even say, like, at least Aslan's presence makes Peter be the kind of person who might apologize to Edmund for being beastly to him, as they would say, right? So this is, like, such cool stuff that's way beyond my thinking right now, but I'm just trying to get at it. But I wonder, I'm really interested in the idea of these stories being a motivating force for 
to po- like basically popularize the concept of forgiveness. To make it a meme that to like make it a spreads, meme that yeah. spreads because actually <laughs> your life is going to be way better if you can live with a forgiveness mentality as you go about your action in the world. Right. Right, especially even forgiving yourself too. Yeah, I think one of the other things that it does is it gives you the license to forgive yourself. Mm, yeah, right, because if God can forgive you, this is what I'm saying. If the greatest, if the creator of the cosmos can forgive, so can I. Yes, and <laughs> and he can forgive me. And and like this is the biggest part, and this is why I think that the Narnia story is, was written the way it was, is because what Lewis is saying is you, mm-hmm. individual who know your own shittiness. Like in your darkest, most horrible moments, you know that you've hated others, yeah. that you've lied to others, mm-hmm. that you've treated others poorly, that you've been resentful. Mm-hmm. You. You're not beyond saving. You're not beyond saving and you can be forgiven. Because, I mean, and this is just occurring to me now because I, this is hard to think about. There is so much that goes on interpersonally and socially with forgiveness. Yeah. You know, psychologically and relationship-wise. If you can be forgive, like if you can be forgived, you can forgive. Like yeah. it's such a pay it forward, uh, non zero sum game. And and the not forgiveness is what rips not just individuals apart. Because if you can't forgive yourself, you're gonna hate yourself. And then if you hate yourself, you're not gonna love others. Mm-hmm. You can't love like you can't. But basically, you can't get blood from a stone. You can't pour love out if you have no love in yourself, right? So if you can't forgive yourself, and that's often why people hate themselves, because they have some, they messed up in some area, and they're beating themselves up, and they're like, "Why are you so crappy? Why, why can't you get things right? Think about why do you hurt other people. Think about Edmund's situation with his change of heart after seeing how cruel and evil the witch is. If his siblings don't forgive him, yeah. Think about his depression and despair because he knows he deserves it. He's got no recourse. He deserves the table, right? He deserves the knife. In well, no, he doesn't. But <laughs> right. he does deserve their consternation. Yeah, like and then dismissiveness and probably ignoring him. Like he he'll know he deserves that. And yet they forgive him. So he's able to come back to and being becomes- a fully fledged king. A full person, basically. And because he's been forgiven, they call him Edmund the Just. Yeah. How, how can he not be just? And you think about the weight, the psychological weight on a person if they've wronged someone and they know that they haven't been forgived, forgiven, or if they're holding a grudge. So both sides of that scale. And so I think the philosophical to psychological need of a society for forgiveness is why probably some of our deepest stories involve it. Yeah. You know, because we can't really survive with each other in the world without being able to forgive each other. And think about in, um, I believe it was Huck Finn, when there's those two, like, there's the feuding families just slaughtering one another. Yeah. For some thing that had happened. Which probably most of them don't even remember. And, like, this is a story, that is a story as old as, like, probably our cave-like ancestors, who would, they get some grudge with another tribe. And they they just they kill them. Yeah, and I mean I don't want to put it just at economical terms, but your opportunity cost there. Yeah, <laughs> right? right. Yeah. Like, what are all these families not getting to do because they're just trying to kill each other for something that they did? You know. But forgiveness allows you to do that. Yeah. Right. Forgiveness is the mechanism, the social mechanism that allows people to move on and do the next thing in their life as they need to have action in the world. Yeah, <laughs> and 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 not be you know feud like you said the opportunity cost of just feuding for all this time. Exactly. Right? Yeah. So that's, I think that's a super crucial aspect of the Jesus story that is 
amazing, you know, because once, and, and you know, like once I remove the metaphysics from the story, I think it's better. Right. For me. Yeah. Right. Like yeah. that's what I'm yeah. saying. Like I, I'm actually more impressed with it as not being literal. Right. Cause it's like, <laughs> Oh, that's why it's there. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And yeah. then, and especially because as the more you realize about like the old stories and the Bible and stories older than the Bible, even like clearly they're pieced together by this person at this time, this person, like it's an oral tradition. Right. And then it's, and so what I think is so great about Narnia's retelling of that is that, it's not exactly the point of the book. So like you have to, I mean, again, C.S. Lewis is not subtle. No. <laughs> right. No, but no. as a kid, even you're not, but it's, it's subconsciously getting into your head that Aslan is this amazing. And Edmund was that terrible. And Aslan's amazingness goes to Edmund who doesn't deserve it. But it redeems Edmund. Doesn't, Edmund. Yeah, it redeems Edmund. And that grace is what allows Edmund to become great and the war hero that he mm-hmm. becomes even in that one mm-hmm. battle where he mm-hmm. actually is the one that stops the queen yeah. from turning everyone into stone yeah so you might even say like jesus or aslan is kind of like the first part of a chain that doesn't ha- or like a locomotive like it's like every other part of the chain has two sides so it's like the forgiven and the forgiven right yes but because even the most blameless characters can forgive or like do something for someone else yeah, in can that take era, the blame. can take the blame. That archetype is strong enough to set off the dominoes in a culture. Yeah. So that everyone can do it for everyone else. I like this even insight because I never even Aslan thought about and Jesus forgiveness in its social function. But mm-hmm. you're right. Yeah. It's, a, it's essential social function. <laughs> Try to live without it, right? Try to go a day without... And it's not even, I forgive you. It's like, oh, it's not a problem. Yeah. Or it's not a big deal. Those... Little things you say at the workplace. I had an experience today where someone I worked with was like, ah, I made a mistake. I put this wrong thing. And I was like, oh, that's not a big deal. I can fix that. Yeah. I'm not saying, hey, I forgive you. Like, like it's not that you, grandiose. To, but then you had to take that task on yourself and yeah. fix it. Yeah. What I'm communicating to them is that our relationship is way stronger and I care about it way more than this little mistake. So I'm going to take care of it and don't let it bother you. Yeah. <laughs> because... Yeah. I will see you tomorrow and the next day at work and next week. And, and for, if we're and building all up times, resentments over these little things, <laughs> yeah. it's going to be bad. Then everybody suffers. So, yeah, I don't know. <laughs> I like that, Luke. Well, that's a, that is an insightful way of looking at this. And I think that's the core and the, that's the nut that's been cracked. And we've got, we've <laughs> got the, you know, the core mm-hmm. of what, narnia is all about yeah it's like that's the story mm-hmm. but i mean obviously weaving all these intricate fables and, and myths together which is mm-hmm. beautiful and i yeah. love but yeah it's why is it so powerful because it's so deep because it means so it's, much. it's things that are in our lives it's connected to things in our lives that we would never have guessed unless we go down the rabbit hole a bit yeah, unless we go through the wardrobe you know and i and the thing that's so great about motifs is that it's not like C.S. Lewis had to have all of that thought out no. to write it, right? No. Because he he can these a lot of these feelings are connected. So he could have a connected feeling two or three or four feelings away, but the tissue, the connecting tissue is all there for somebody else to take up and think about and, and love. And I think that's why these the stories in the Bible evolve the way they do. You know? Yeah. There's a probably a lot of stories from that time that didn't come our way because they didn't have an impact on the way we think about the world. 
Right. <laughs> you yeah. know? No, I, I, I think that's the power. How is it that every story in the Bible is essentially an archetypal story? Well, <laughs> those are the ones that made it. Yeah. Those are the important <laughs> ones, know? right? Yeah. You know? David but, and Goliath. Yeah. I mean, like, yeah. So after all of that really high grandeur talk, I just want to end with a less... <laughs> Oh, but it was, intense, um, yeah. I loved this idea from this was a this was a line C.S. Lewis used about how the four of them govern. They encouraged ordinary people who wanted to live and let live. So yes. it's like a, the libertarian slogan. It's a libertarian <laughs> paradise. Yeah. <laughs> I had a friend recently tell me that he wanted to be a dictator, but as a dictator, he would only have one rule that you can't tell everyone else what to do. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I've actually often thought about well, not often when I was in university, I thought I was like, okay, you know what? I should write a story about a governing body that only did two things. It had a monopoly on violence that it never used except... To in, stop violence. In, uh, it, like, it had a... It, yeah, if you are violent, you go to jail. Right. Essentially, it's a government that has two functions. It enforces contracts and it prevents violence. Yeah. So if you, you are violent, you go to jail. Or and that's you, it. Yeah, yeah, and that's it. And it doesn't do anything else. And <laughs> everything else is up to the citizens to figure out with each other. That would be a that would be a great. Well, I mean, I think that would be a great place. It would have a lot of problems that we haven't thought about yet. But we would, it would you know, what it would. It would probably better in a lot of ways. It would take a lot of ingenuity that we haven't had to yeah. do yet. Well, that's you know? my biggest problem with like large government programs, and always there. There is a quote that I saw recently that so there's an election going on in the UK right now, and there was a tweet that said, you know. Hey, Tories, what are you doing to provide for me and my family? And I just found that to be such an offensive thing to say. I'm like, it's not the government's job to provide for you and your family. That's your job. Well, David, I would recommend, and maybe not on this podcast, but certainly on some podcast, you talk about your theory on the different ways people view money. Yes. Because yes. you are very articulate and have a thoughtful take on that. And I think it's not well spread. So, and if it comes up in a story, yeah, organically on this one, we can yeah. talk about it, but yeah, it's a good one. Okay, so a uh, summary of your thoughts of this book. It's as good as I remember and better. <laughs> like, it's just really fun. If you read it beginning to end, it would take you like not even three hours, I think. Oh, yeah, I think, yeah, and so, it takes like an hour and a half, two hours. Yeah, I love it. It's so beautiful, and it's the kickstart to one of the mo like the the chronicles of narnia were the first series of books i ever read so they will always have the most special place in my heart for what they did now i'm not going to say they're my favorite books anymore but they're the most special I yeah guess. i like so that. I, I think i think i could agree with that i think this was the first when my mom reading the chronicles of narnia to me was my when i fell in love with books uh, stories and mm -hmm. i fell in love with stories and so i can honestly say that the, i mean the christmas gift that i got let's say from these and i think my mom did read this book to me over christmas i'm pretty sure mm -hmm. but the gift that i got was a love for the adventure of the mind mm -hmm. and i'm always great and i mean i've read every book that lewis has written including all of his apologetics and everything so i will always love that c.s lewis could read something read something like The Problem of Pain or A Grief Observed, but he could also write these children's novels that have not just stood the test of time. They're, they're arguably still some of the most popular stories in the whole world. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's really beautiful, actually. Yeah, so I guess Merry Christmas. <laughs> Merry Christmas, guys. <laughs> um, and just as an aside about Christmas, 
I think it's really important to remember that this isn't a Christian holiday. And I don't mean that like as in if you're Christian, don't celebrate it that way. I mean, obviously, if you're Christian, celebrate it any way you want to and, and have a deep, meaningful. But Christmas is so important as a cultural phenomenon for our country and many other countries that I take a little bit of umbrage with the idea that we should not say Christmas. Or people say like, I don't celebrate Christmas or, and that's fine. If you don't celebrate Christmas, that's totally your prerogative. But in Canada, we do celebrate Christmas and it's important because of those human universals that we talked about at the beginning, the togetherness and the loveliness that is available to anyone. And I'll, this little story of last year around Christmas time where I was working, there was someone who, there was a lady there who was from Pakistan and it was her first Christmas in Canada. And I'll tell you, I've never met anyone who was more excited and curious about the holiday. And she's like, oh, why, what about these songs? Where do they come from? Like, what about, why do you have stockings? Where's it? And so like, I had to basically like explain, explain Christmas yeah. like you would maybe to a four-year-old, <laughs> right? <laughs> right. Not, not like that condescending, no, but yeah. like someone with that level of knowledge about the holiday. And the more she learned about it, the more she was excited. It's like, no, here's the thing. Christmas is for everybody because it is essentially about, like we talked in the Grinch, about loving each other and being with each other and celebrating that and celebrating the hope. And these things are all human. They're not culturally relativistic. Yeah. And I mean, we're halfway out of the dark. (laughs) Well, four days. (laughs) at least no not well halfway out of the darkening sure yes yes i agree and so it's not getting darker (laughs) christmas is you know i love the songs i love the decorations i love the tree i love the lights i really love the lights actually christmas lights are amazing to me i love the eggnog with the rum (laughs) but i really love that for like three weeks people just kind of chill out and enjoy life and one another and one another you know and that should be for everybody whether you celebrate christmas or not so that's what i would say about it thanks luke (laughs) that's good so this has been another episode of really true fiction a very festive one i hope uh merry christmas my name is luke mason my name is david parker and um uh, may you deck the halls and don your gay apparel (laughs) have a good one (laughs) bye